Perhaps you've heard the statement attributed to Mark Twain in which he said, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bother me, it's the parts that I do understand that frighten me. And I think there is certainly some truth to that statement. It's the parts of the Bible that we do understand that that frighten us at times. And this morning, I presented to you what I thought was one of the most powerful verses in all the Bible. This evening, I'd like to present to you what I consider one of the most frightening passages in all of the Bible. And as we study this passage tonight, we're going to be doing so through the preaching and the prayers and the songs. And so, I'm going to be doing the song leading and the preaching because it's going to be all interwoven in part of our lesson tonight. In just a few moments, we're going to have the Lord's Supper and the collection and a prayer and then get directly into our service. But let's begin by noticing the passage. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 13. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you are not redeemed with the corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through Him believe in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. What a powerful passage. We'll be studying this tonight. As we consider the passage that we read just moments ago in 1 Peter chapter 1, We recognize, obviously, that the main theme within the text is about holiness. And we can look at 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 15, and it describes the goal for us as Christians, what it is that we're striving for in our lives, why we get together as Christians to study God's Word and worship God, and why we study our Bibles, and why we pray, and why we do all the things that we do. The goal as demonstrated in this verse is, as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. That's the goal, holiness in our lives. We recognize the main statement here. You also be holy. As we consider what the Bible says about holiness, we recognize that in Romans chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, the Bible says, But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. There was a time, brethren, when we were slaves of sin. There was a time in our lives when we were giving ourselves over to sin and doing all manner of wickedness. And God says, now that we're Christians, we're to put all that aside and our goal is to be slaves of righteousness, which leads us to holiness. Holiness, of course, is the idea of being sacred, of being separated from that which is vain and which is vulgar, and to be set apart, useful for the Master, useful for holy 
things. But as we consider this goal, we recognize that in 1 Peter 1 and verse 15, it also provides for us the standard for our goal. He says, you be holy as He who called you is holy. We're not holy just because we're better than the world. We're not holy just because we're not being as bad as we could be. We're holy when we're being like God. Just how holy is God? Well, I'm going to let God speak for Himself on this matter. We've got several verses that we're going to go through quickly. I've got them all on the board to make it a little bit easier for us. Revelation 4 and verse 8. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Leviticus chapter 10 and verse 3. This is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. Psalm 99. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He dwells between the cherubim. Let the earth be moved. The Lord is great in Zion, and He is high above all the peoples. Let them praise Your great and awesome name. He is holy. The King's strength also loves justice. You've established equity. You've executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His footstool. He is holy. Moses and Aaron were among his priests, and Samuel was among those who called upon his name. They called upon the Lord, and he answered them. He spoke to them in the cloudy pillar. They kept his testimonies and the ordinance he gave them. You answered them, O Lord our God. You were to them God who forgives, though you took vengeance on their deeds. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill, for the Lord our God is holy. 1 Samuel 2 and verse 2, No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. Ezekiel chapter 39 and verse 7, So I'll make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel, and I'll not let them profane my holy name anymore. Then the nation shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Revelation 15, verses 3 and 4. Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? Excuse me, for you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. Joshua 24 and verse 19. But Joshua said to the people, You cannot serve the Lord, for He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He'll not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 3, And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is how holy our God is. Words like truth and righteousness and justice and judgment cannot bear to even look upon our sins. That is how holy our God is. Sinless. Unadulterated. Without spot. Without blemish. That is our standard. You begin to see why I say this is one of the most frightening passages in all the Scripture? What an amazing standard God has set for us when He has said, Be holy, just as I am holy. But further, He's also provided the scope of our holiness. Not only are we be holy, not only are we 
to be holy as God is holy, but we're to be that holy in all our conduct. Not just in our conduct while we're here. Not just in our conduct while we're at the men's meeting on Tuesday night. Not just as the groups are gathering or as with other Christians. But always. In everything we do. Every moment we spend watching the television. Every moment we spend surfing the internet. Every song we listen to on the radio. Every movement we make with our bodies. The way we sit. The way we stand. The way we talk. The way we conduct ourselves at home. The way we conduct ourselves at school. The way we conduct ourselves on the job. The way we conduct ourselves when we're around other Christians. Every single move we make is to be made in holiness as our God is holy. That's the standard. That's the goal that we're striving for. I know none of us are there yet. That's why we've got this section labeled, The Goal. That's what we're working toward. But we must be working toward it. It must be our goal. We move from discussing the goal, which is, of course, holiness. As God is holy in all our conduct. And we begin to discuss the reason. Why should we do this? First Peter chapter 1 and verse 16 said to us, Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. That's the reason. The number one reason. We're supposed to be holy because our God in heaven is holy. Peter here calls upon a statement that is repeated over and over again throughout the book of Leviticus. Various forms of it. Be holy because I am holy. Be holy because the Lord your God is holy. Over and over again this is repeated in the book of Leviticus. The book of the law in which with minute detail God demonstrated to the children of Israel the cleanliness and the, the different things that they had to go through in order to maintain cleanliness and holiness to be one of His children. Peter calls on that language. Interestingly, there's one great parallel passage back in Leviticus chapter 21. If you look back in Leviticus chapter 21, we don't have any more long lists of Scripture, so you've got to look this one up. Leviticus chapter 21, beginning at verse 6. The Scripture there says, "...they shall be holy to their God, and not profane the name of their God. For they offer the offerings of the Lord made by fire, and the bread of their God. Therefore they shall be holy." He's talking about the priests. They're supposed to be holy because they're making offerings to a holy God. It continues in Leviticus 21 and verse 7. They shall not take a wife who is a harlot or a defiled woman, nor shall they take a woman divorced from her husband. For the priest is holy to his God. Therefore you shall consecrate him, for he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord, who sanctify you, am holy. He says of the priests, they're ministers and servants to a holy God, and because they are priests to a holy God, they must be holy. And the people were to regard them as holy, and the priests were to be on a level that even as far as the holiness of the law was concerned was even above what God required of the rest of the people. Because they're supposed to be holy. Interestingly, if you turn back over to 1 Peter, and this time look in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, Peter says this about us as Christians. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, Peter says, You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What are we? We're priests. 
And what is our responsibility? To offer up spiritual sacrifices to a holy God. And so God has called upon us to be holy in all our conduct. He does not want us regarding iniquity in our hearts. He does not want us to believe that it will do us a bit of good if throughout our lives we are living in lust and deceit and unholiness, but then gather here and offer up the fruit of our lips in song. He says, you're offering up spiritual sacrifices, so we as a priesthood must be holy. Why? Because we are serving a holy God and He will accept nothing less. We must be holy because God is holy. But we continue reading in 1 Peter chapter 1. And we find in verses 18 and 19, he says, "...knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot." How did we get to be this royal priesthood? How did we get to be sons of God called on to be holy? We were bought and paid for by the incorruptible blood of Jesus Christ. And Peter's pointing out to us, when you consider the price that has been paid to save us, we should not corrupt ourselves. But rather, we should live up to that imperishable and incorruptible blood that paid for our sins. In Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, of course, we read verse 23 over and over again, and we'll read it tonight, but verse 24 is where we're starting now. Romans 3.24, Paul said that we're justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God demonstrated His righteousness. He demonstrated His holiness by redeeming us, by paying for us. But at what cost? The blood of His Son was given as a propitiation for our sins, as a sacrifice that would appease the anger of God that we so deserve. And if God would pay this price to redeem us, how much ought we to pay sacrificing our desires in order to be holy and to live up to that blood that was shed? 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 20 drives it home why this demands that we strive to be holy in all our conduct as God is holy. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 20, Paul said, For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. When you go out and buy something, to whom does it belong? It belongs to you. Who gets to decide what to do with it and how it should be used? You do. God went out and bought us with the imperishable and incorruptible blood of His Son. And He owns us. We are not our own. Everything we have is His to be used as He calls on to us to use it. He's bought us. We belong to Him. And because of that, we must be holy in all our conduct just as God is holy. But we also go back to 1 Peter chapter 1. 
And this time, verse 17, and we find a third reason. We should be holy just because God is holy. We should be holy because He has redeemed us, redeemed us with the incorruptible blood of His Son. And we should be holy because of what 1 Peter 1 and verse 17 says, And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, Conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. We have been bought with the blood of Christ. We've been adopted into the family of God. We are His sons and daughters. We are His children. We are separate and set apart as His own special people. But this does not mean that we get to behave however we want. This does not mean that God overlooks our sins. You all all know the reputation of preacher's kids, don't you? I believe me, I know you know, because some of you say stuff about it to me. But you know what is so sad? And brethren, if you ever catch me doing this, please feel free to just let me have it. But you know what amazes me so often? Is how we preachers can get up here and talk about how folks are supposed to behave. And we can talk about how parents are supposed to behave. And our kids are doing the absolute awfulest things. And we overlook it. Why? Why? Because they're our little angels. They can never do anything wrong, right? We preachers aren't the only ones that do that, by the way. We can notice what everybody else's kids do wrong, but ours get special treatment because they're our little darlings, our little angels, and they never do anything wrong. But God is not blind like we are sometimes. God judges without partiality. And though we are His children, He does not overlook our sins but will judge us. And that's why Peter said in his second letter, chapter 2 and verse 20, in Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 20, Peter said, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. The child of God that returns to the sinful world. It's not overlooked. It's not passed on. It'll be judged. And God said this was even worse than if He had just stayed in the world to begin with. Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 11, as he talked about the coming destruction of the world, our God is going to judge this world. And notice what he says, Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Peter says judgment's coming. Our God, He is a judge and He is an impartial judge, even over His children, His priests. His own special people. And so because this judgment is coming and because we don't know when, our responsibility is to live holy, godly lives so that we may be prepared for that day. We are to be holy as God is holy in all our conduct. Why? Because God is holy. Because God has redeemed us with the holy blood of His Son. And because He is going to judge us in holiness. And so we must live in holy and godly conduct, as He is holy at all times. We recognize the goal. The goal, of course, is that we would be holy as God is holy in all of our conduct. We recognize the reason. Because God is holy. Because He has redeemed us with His holy blood. 
and because He is going to judge us in holiness. And so we recognize our goal and why. But how? 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 14 says that if we're going to be holy, it's going to be as obedient children. The first thing we recognize when we consider this plea for holiness is, brethren, if we're going to be holy, it's going to be because we have been redeemed by our God. We've already talked about that, but let's just read this verse again. Knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. We've already talked about the redemption. We've already talked about the price that was paid. But the thing that we've got to recognize here is that God's plan from the very beginning was that He was going to save us and it was going to be by His grace. There's no way for us to be holy as God is holy unless God does something with the sins that we've already committed. Look in Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verses 8 and 9. Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9. Paul said, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. We're going to be saved. It's going to be by God's grace. God asks for holiness. And He demands that we live rightly before Him. But please do not misconstrue anything I say tonight as though it might sound like I'm saying you've got to earn your salvation or that you've got to somehow be righteous enough and then you get to go to heaven or holy enough and then you'll be saved because it just doesn't work that way. We've already blown that. Every single one of us. We've already missed the boat on earning it. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, what did Paul say? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've already blown it. Our standard, our goal was to be as holy as God is, but this passage says we've all already blown it and fallen short of God's glory. If we're going to be saved, it's going to be because God in His mercy redeems us and makes us whole. But do not think that means that we're now allowed to live however we want to. That's not the point. No, we have to balance this and understand what it says in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? When we become children of God and His redeeming grace has washed our sins away, we don't get to just live in a haphazard manner thinking that it's up to us now. We do what we want. Oh no. He says that we're dead to sin now. We're not supposed to live any longer in it. He's called us to a higher plane and we've got to stand on higher ground. And be holy as God is holy. Confessing our sins to Him when we commit them, but not going back into our sins. If we're going to be holy as God is holy in all our conduct, first off, we've got to be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. But secondly, as we consider what it said in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 13, he said, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. If we're going to be holy as our God in heaven is holy in all of our conduct, it's going to begin with the mind as far as our end of things. 
And we've got to gird up the loins of our minds. This is an idiom for these ancient peoples. When they talk about girding up the loins, you remember they, they wore the robes that hung down very low. And if they were about to go on a journey, if they were going to be walking or running, they would take those robes and they would hike them up and they would tie them around and tuck them into their belt. And they called that girding up your loins. You did that because you were getting prepared for a trip or you were getting prepared for a battle. And you didn't want all those billing robes to get in your way and trip you up. You had to prepare and get yourself ready. Far too often we fail in holiness because we don't prepare ourselves for the battle. We don't prepare ourselves to even try to be holy. We just go out into the day. He says you've got to gird up the loins of your mind. Remember this morning as we talked about the battle in which we find ourselves? We read from 2 Corinthians chapter 10. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 5, Paul said this, We're destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. There's girding up the loins of our mind. Taking those thoughts captive. We're not taking those thoughts captive. We're not going to allow them to run away with themselves. We're not going to allow our minds to run rapid saying, oh, I can't control what I think about. Why, it may be true that things pop into our minds and we can't control that, but every single one of us decides what we're going to continue thinking about. And Paul told us what we should think about in Philippians chapter 4. In Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8, Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8, Paul said this, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. That's what we're supposed to be thinking about. Good things, pure things, right things, trustworthy things, holy things. Spend your time thinking about those things. Put those things into your mind and you'll be amazed at what happens with your actions. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, beginning in verse 29, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 5, verse 29 and 30, If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. This is talking about girding up and getting ready. Cut off and get rid of those things that would hinder us and would get in the way. And focus on those things that's going to help us be holy. If we're going to be holy, we've got to gird up the loins of our mind further with our mind. We've got to be sober. The idea of sobriety is the idea of clear and reasonable thinking. And in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 13, he pointed out that if we're going to live in holiness as our God is holy, we've got to be sober. You realize that in this positive command to be sober, we find, of course, the prohibition of anything that will take away from our sobriety, from our ability to reason and to think clearly. Evil companionships, drinking alcohol, mind-altering drugs, worldly distractions. The list could go on and on of things that would confound our judgment and our reason and our clear thinking. Peter says you be sober. Think clearly. Don't allow anything to get in the way. Don't allow anything to take the edge off of your ability to reason. Because then you won't have holiness. In 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, we find 
another term that often goes along with sobriety in the Scripture. In 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, Peter said, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Believe you me, the devil is on the alert. And he is looking for even just a moment in which we allow ourselves to be anything less than purely sober so that he might take advantage of it and cause us to sin. In which case, we're not reaching the goal. Gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober. But then he says you've got to rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. If we're going to be holy as God is holy, we've got to make sure that our hope is founded in the right place. Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 23. Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 23. The Scripture there says not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we've been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. Our salvation is in hope. What this points out to us is that our salvation is not about what's going on right now, but it's about the future. Our hope is not that anything is going to take place right now in this world, but that sometime down the road, something is going to take place. That's the grace that's going to be given to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We are saved in hope. This was of particular importance to the people to whom Peter was writing. They were being oppressed. They were being persecuted. And Peter was pointing out to them, don't put your hope in something that's going to conquer this nation that's persecuting us. Put your hope in the grace that's going to come when Jesus is revealed. It may well be that Peter had in mind for them specifically what was going to happen surrounding the destruction of Jerusalem. But even if that is the case, the principle still applies for us as we look around at what's going on and realize that our hope should not be fixed on anything that's going on down here. Our hope should be fixed on Christ. And when He is revealed, and what's going to happen then, as we are spared from the wrath of God and get to spend eternity with Him in heaven. And as Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we need to comfort one another with these words. How are we going to be holy? First of all, we've got to be redeemed. We've got to gird up the loins of our mind. We've got to be sober. We've got to rest our hope in the grace that's going to be revealed to us when Jesus is revealed. 1 Peter 1.14, As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance. We've got to be different. If we're going to be holy as God is holy, brethren, we are going to stand out. We're going to be different. We're going to be different from folks in the world. We're going to be different from other churches that are not accomplishing holiness. We're going to be different. And folks will mock us, and folks will make fun of us. But he says, don't conform to the things that you used to do. You've now become someone new. You ought to be living in a different way. In 1 Peter chapter 4, and verse 3, he continued this theme. As he pointed out, for the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. So you've done all that. Brethren, we've spent enough time in our lives sinning. So it's now time to make a change and to be different. We might say, yeah, but I was brought up in the church. I never acted like that. I never did all those really bad things. Well, notice what it says in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, 
Paul says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too, all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That covers us all. Maybe we never did commit the biggies. Maybe we were brought up in church and were, as far as the world was concerned, pretty good people. But what Paul has pointed out is that every single one of us have indulged the desires of our flesh. Every single one of us have been, by nature, children of wrath. As we've given ourselves over to do what the devil wanted us to do. And he said, now you've got to change. We were dead in our trespasses. He sent his son to bring us back to life. Romans chapter 12. Verses 1 and 2. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Don't be like the world. Don't use the world as a standard. Don't even make the mistake that some make, saying, well, I'm at least a few steps ahead of the world. He says we're supposed to be different from the world. Our minds are to be renewed and transformed in Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 22. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 22. He says, in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. We're supposed to be different than we were before we became Christians. And brethren, here's the crux of this. If you look at your life, and the only thing different in your life from before you were baptized into Christ and after is the fact that you were wet, you haven't put on the new man. Because every single one of us had things to change. And if we didn't change, we didn't do what God commanded different. Finally, in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 17, he says, if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay here in fear. It's not spiritually correct today to talk about fearing God. Folks don't want to hear about how we need to fear the living God and what a judge He is and how He doesn't tolerate sin. Most of that's because of a misunderstanding of 1 John chapter 4 and verse 18 where it says perfect love casts out fear. We're not going to study that passage tonight. What we need to suffice it to say is see what this passage says. And what's it say? It says we're supposed to conduct ourselves throughout the rest of our time here in fear. This is a frightening passage. This frightens me. And I'll tell you why. I know all about God's grace. I know all about the redemption that He's provided for us in Christ. But I also recognize that that grace did not give us a license to live however we wanted. What that grace provided was a stepping stone for us to go ahead and step up to the plate and strive to submit to God now, even though we've botched it in the past. It provided a stepping stone for us to step up to the plate and strive to be holy today as God is holy in all our conduct. And I'm frightened because I know I'm not there. 
says, conduct yourselves throughout the time you stay here in fear. Why? Because it's the fear that's going to cause us to wake up tomorrow and say, I've got to do better. I've got to keep growing. I'm not there yet. We're not getting rid of the grace of Christ. If you've fallen short, His grace will wash your sins away if you're striving to submit to Him. But don't think that means you just get to stop where you are. Look at what Paul said in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation, notice this, with fear and trembling. My understanding of that passage, that phrase meant something very specific. It meant the fact that we recognize that we probably aren't going to make the cut. And so we're afraid and pushing all the more harder. Keep on working, Paul says, with fear and trembling. Don't get satisfied. Don't become complacent. Don't think I've made it. Keep pressing on for the goal. Remember what he said in Matthew 10, 28? Jesus said, don't fear those who can kill the body, but afterwards can't do anything with the soul. He said, fear the one who can kill the body and afterwards cast the soul into hell. Fear that one. We're to fear. And if we're going to live in holiness, we are going to have to fear. Trusting in God's grace, but always recognizing that we serve a righteous and holy God that does not tolerate sin. And we've got to be getting better.